Today I welcome Julie Robinson, CEO of the Independent Schools Council. In this episode, I discuss the role of independent education, meaningful partnerships, access to bursaries, plus driving educational policy. We have listeners across the world. Tell us about the Independent Schools Council, the IFC, and your role there. It's a curious thing, yes. Many people have heard of the ISC because they see our annual census and our daily news summary um, publications. Um, when I was ahead, I wasn't really clear about what it was, uh, but I am now. So it's really, it's really great to have the opportunity to explain it. Um, it's basically a trade body which represents schools in membership of the 11 constituent associations. So these are associations across independent education um, and they're for schools, heads, bursars and governors. So we have AGBIS, BSA, COBIS, um, GSA, HMC, ISBA, ISA, IAPS, um, not quite sure about alphabetical order now, SKIS, Society of Heads and WISC. Is that 11? Yeah, I've, I, I, lost, I lost count. But so these it... are all different interest groups. Um, and this is the thing about the independent sector. It's so varied. So you've got the big HMC schools, you've got the WISC schools in Wales, you've got the bursars in ISBA, and they all come together under the umbrella of ISC. A lot of what I actually do in my job is making connections across within and then beyond to unions and other groups. So ISC is London based. And we've got three main areas of work. There's the research and data collection and analysis. So currently we're doing Census 2021, which gives us real credible data about the sector. And because we've got that information, we can ensure there's balance in the presentation of information about independent schools. It can get a little bit skewed. Um, so that's research. Then we've got media and communications. Um, and our aim is to represent the interests of independent education and balance that national media debate so that we can show how the existence of independent schools contributes positively to society and to education more broadly. That's the good news. And then thirdly, we do policy and public affairs. That's been really busy this last year. Um, and the aim is just to get the best possible outcomes on policies and on the political agenda for independent schools. So it's, it's ma mainly based in England, but there's SKIS in Scotland, WISC in Wales, and lots of links with the international set as well. Yeah, through COVIS, I noticed is on, your, yeah. is on your list. So that's a lot of independent schools and HMC have an international um, kind of area as well. So, um, I mean, it's great. And obviously being the voice of the independent schools is not easy, um, particularly covering not just the UK, but obviously other, other areas around the world. If you could tell everybody um, one thing about the independent education that they would all agree with you or believe, what would that one thing be? It's something that we all came around last year um, when we were looking at the value of our sector more broadly. But I think everyone would agree with is that parents deserve the right to choose the right kind of school for their child and for that to happen you need to have a whole range of types of schools with different specialisms different sizes of schools different approaches right across the country so diversity in education is good so yeah, yeah. parental choice parental choice yeah i, I completely yeah. agree it's a great answer 
As the voice of the independent education sector, what do you find the most difficult about your role? <laughs> That's quite easy, I think. Um, the hardest thing is achieving consensus because the clue is in the name. Our sector is full of independent thinkers um, and independent organisations. Um, but actually, we, we do come together on a number of topics and we have quite a strong voice there when, when we agree. Um, and will some factions of UK society always be anti-independent schools? Yeah, this is the, the sort of dinner party debate, isn't it? How do you feel about private schools? And then how do you feel about private education, uh, private health then? Why, why do you have a different view? Um, I think there is a tendency, there's a human tendency to, to polarise debate and the media loves a bit of drama and negativity. That's what makes something newsworthy. Um, added to that, there's this um, curious class-based set of assumptions there seems in sort of English culture, which feeds a stereotype about independent schools and who goes to them. So it is really important for us to be able to rebut that and say well do you know what we've we've got the figures we've got the data and these independent schools are typically small community schools the average fee is about 15,000 a year they're more accessible than you might realize they're specialist schools are special needs schools they give better capacity to education and loads of choice across the system um, and that's the sensible place to be having a debate um, but unfortunately yeah it it seems that a lot of debates start with this sort of polarised, um, I don't know, playing into the unfairness idea. Yeah, um, agreed. And, and, and there'll always be that, 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 that polarisation. I don't think we'll ever shift from that. Um, I think as long as, as, long as humour is on this planet and you can offer a private of anything, there'll always be that divide. Um, but the hardest thing to always bust is, is stereotypes. Um, but I think bus, trying to take on stereotypes is really hugely important. You know, I, you know, I talk from experience where, you know, I wasn't privately educated. I ended up going to a state primary school. I then went to a good grammar school. Um, and then when I became a parent, the, the choices opened to me when I kind of went to explore the prep sector was like, wow, actually, what did I need to do to afford it? Because I wanted the best of my child. And I didn't think I would be like that. I thought I'll go and take a look at it because I, you know, I like to have choice and see what's available. And also I like to think I want the best um, for my children or, or what I'm doing. Um, but it did, it did change my perceptions and my stereotypes because all I heard was that the negativity and the, and, and the classic traditional stereotypes of what private school education was about and the types of people it, it created. And I've got to say, having been in the private sector now, all my kids, um, having obviously working in the independent sector as part of my role, it, it couldn't be further from the truth. And I and completely endorse independent education when it comes to opportunity and what they're doing to, um, to offer a great, well-rounded, enriched education for, for children. Um, affordability is always going to be an issue. Um, but we'll get on to, I think, the partnerships and bursaries because it's an important part of being independent. ISC focuses a lot on their communications on partnerships. So partnerships, not just, you know, with the state sector, but partnerships in general about, you know, seeing what relationships could exist to, to better involve other parts of the community with the value and offering of the independent sector. What are some of the best partnerships that you've seen in the independent sector? 
Oh, there are so many. It's, it's a really varied picture. Um, we've got a, a website called Schools Together where schools have put examples of projects on that website and there are over 5,700 on there, but there are over 11,700 all told. Um, Favourites is difficult because schools are so different, you know, they have different resources, different strengths, different capacity and different relationships with local state schools. Um, so sometimes partnerships are only, or usually they're only possible when good relationships have been sparked up between a state school and an independent school. And sometimes that's a, a bit of a sticking point. Um, the, the broadest, most established most obviously effective ones are ISSP groups of schools or the LAE model where you've got a whole group of schools supporting a state school and, and sending in expertise um, to it. Um, there's some wonderful subject-based support. Part of the, uh, I think the role model of independent schools is, is around partnerships. And actually one of my, my, my earlier guests on the podcast, we talked about actually getting get, getting rid of the word outreach you know outreach feels quite charitable mm. and it's kind of like i'm i'm better than you and and, and and by by default i need to help you and it's not about that it's about common interests and actually seeing what each you know whether it's a local school or whether it's a local community what they need right because you need to thrive as a community mm. and then seeing whether it's resources you know it's very rarely money i found in the past it, it's it's access to good resources facilities people um educational models that can yeah. actually grow a, a, a community of humans rather than it being necessarily money i think it is e easier for the bigger schools uh, but they have to have that drive from the head so david goodhue at latimer upper has created a whole raft of different types of partnerships and bursaries and, and all sorts of things but you're right um, while the big schools can pour in resources um, and there's that Eton, one, Eton 200 project you may have seen advertised last year where they're going to commit a hundred million pounds to reduce the disadvantage gap. You know, not a lot of schools can do that, but well, you know, well done Eton doing that. So there are opportunities for smaller schools. So, you know, I was, I was a prep school head. If someone said to me, all you have to do is um, commit a couple of hours of one of your specialist teachers a week. And there could be hubs that that teachers resources or time go to you could really make a difference uh, across the country and there was um, a new project i think just yesterday was launched and it's aiming to provide local hubs so that vulnerable children can access not just um, independent boarding schools through bursaries places um, through springboard but also something called spring forward where they can access resources and teaching and mentoring so there are a couple of these mentoring schemes that have gone on online um, really just so helpful in terms of teaching and general support for pupils and any any size of school can contribute a little bit to that and as you say it's about the people and we know that teachers just want to help make the world a better place and that can mean the pupils in their school or anyone's children. Um, so there's an awful lot of goodwill in the sector. So yeah, very, very hard to pick a favorite partnership, sorry. But you know, yeah, it's a, it's a but, but, but there's lots going on and it's great to have such variety um, for, for schools to kind of also be inspired because it's not really easy thinking what you should be doing. Um, but I think, you know, obviously what you do at the ISC to, 
to help support those those partnerships that the independent sector want to do um, I think is, is, is fantastic the big thing is about measuring impact so you know is it easy to measure the impact of these partnerships it's been a sticking point for a while um, so on our schools together website there are some resources for impact evaluation but it's, it's another area of work you have to do alongside your project and I think it's fair to say that mostly these partnership projects have grown up through our sector just out of for positive reasons for civic duty um, and they've just fallen into place like you said because an independent school and a state school they see what they need and what they've got in common and one can help and the other side can help in a different way and it just grows but now of course and it's not a, it's not a box ticking exercise and those things then get established but now as resources are really tight across the country it actually makes sense to understand the value so that you can ensure you're directing your resources effectively, whatever those resources are. And we're, we're maybe a bit behind the curve on evaluation. Um, so a few years ago, I'd have said to you, oh, well, a lot of the benefits are soft skills and how do you measure building confidence? Well, actually you can do that. There are psychometric tests. You can run questionnaires and surveys at periods of time throughout a project and you can measure that. Um, whether you can put a, a total value on some of the, the gains from partnership, I'm not sure. So, you know, you teach someone to swim and of course swimming may save their life. How, how do you put a value on that? Um, but we are looking to improve the evaluation. It, it's, a, it's a whole area um, that we need to do more on, I think. But I think schools prefer to just focus most of their resource on the work itself. Yeah. Um, and so not all of them are quite as alert on the evaluation piece as, as they perhaps will be in the future. We're on a bit of yeah. a journey with evaluation. Yeah, and I think as long as it's part of the conversation, because, you know, with, with starting or embarking on any journey or project, you know, having goals, having clear goals, you know, why and the outcomes you expect, it helps you then deliver on that through evidence. So in it may be access to the jobs market or access to higher education, or it might be. So actually just identifying what, what the purpose and goals are, give you some basic alignment to go, okay, are we, are we actually anywhere towards achieving those goals or are we not? And what do we need to do? Because that'll obviously benefit you where you sit within the ISC, but also with those independent associations for them justifying their membership and what they do to support the, the industry, they can show it. And actually it's about show me, you know, not just about promise and promise and promise. It really yeah. is about delivering on the reality and showing. Um, and I think schools would be able to say, okay, I'll tell you why I'm doing this and what I want to achieve. And you could find some measurables. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just that the reasons they've developed their partnerships have been just to do the right thing yeah. and help out. Um, and we're now having to, move into presenting the value of it in a in a more professional way perhaps yeah um yeah and challenging maybe what they're helping with and and it's it's almost finding it's that needs analysis you know what, what does the community need rather than going look you can have access to my facilities that's an easy thing that does feel like it's more of a checkbox it really is okay what, what does this community really need um you know do they need more access to bursaries do they need more access to something else or and let's not forget the benefit to the independent school as well and its community. So there's an awful lot of sort of two-way traffic where 
in, in some projects that might look a bit one way, like um, one of the political favourites has been sixth formers do some coaching with local primary school children, which, which can be portrayed as quite a patronising kind of project, yeah. but it sort of makes sense in a way. Well, you talk to those sixth formers and ask them what they've learned from the experience. It's really fulfilling for them. It's opened their eyes to their local community. You know, all sorts of benefits actually back in the school yeah um, so we ought we ought to be paying attention to that yeah, yeah absolutely we, we we mustn't forget because there was there, there was benefits and we are you know the, the real world consists of everybody that's been to, to private ill state or no education and you know we, we need to um, make sure that we recognize that i hope you're enjoying the inspiring schools podcast we're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them if you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. A number of schools have come out in recent months and years to say that within, say, 50 years, they want to have X percentage of students on bursaries or to be fully needs blind. Is it wise to look so far ahead when we have no idea what schools or education are going to look like? in 50 years well let alone 10 years uh, i think targets are necessarily good because that helps you know, we have to aspire to those lofty aims in order to motivate the journey towards it so i'm, I'm all for that um, as, as you'll know the proprietors and and trustees and board directors running schools who make these decisions they've got they've got competing priorities so they've got to decide what's right some schools simply don't have the the wherewithal to, to do lots of fundraising. You know, a typical school, a few hundred pupils, maybe prep age. It's, it's not easy for them to, do, to build a big charitable fund towards bursaries. Other schools focus on bursaries and not so much on other types of partnerships. So, so there, are, there are different priorities at play. Um, and bursaries are really costly. You know, you, you need a lot in the bank before you commit to a child for, say, six years and knowing that you're going to take them through on their journey it's, it's a huge commitment um, so it really is a, a big deal for these schools but some schools have proven they can meet those amazing targets so yeah we should definitely encourage them yeah and with, with bursaries you know part of it is 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 making them more readily available and the communities that will benefit from them knowing that they exist and working with a lot of independent schools that do go after bursaries and obviously as a role that we have is that we you know we're trying to market or communicate and to get the message out there and it's enormously difficult so when you start to do um, any focus groups or you go starting to chatting to the communities that would benefit they're, they're they're unaware that it's even possible and that's probably the hardest barrier to overcome is knowing that all of the independent schools offer some level of bursaries, whether it's full or, 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 or partial, but the kids that can benefit and the families wouldn't even consider it and think that actually the, the process maybe is too overwhelming. Should we be doing more and what could we be doing more of as a maybe a, a group to encourage those families to pursue and understand what bursaries are available? You're absolutely right. I found this as a prep school head that the very families I wanted to attract to apply for bursaries, their starting point would be, oh, your kind of school, that's not for us. 
not for people like us. Um, and that again plays back to this stereotype public image and the way we're portrayed in the media. Um, I think a lot can be done at local level uh, where schools are more open. You know, our, our schools are so friendly, as you say, you start looking at actual independent schools and get an experience of them and you realize they're normalized. They're part of society for aspirational parents. Um, so yeah, I mean, you're working this space as well, trying to reach parents who might not otherwise think of independent education for their children because they assume it costs £40,000 when actually the average is 15. It's just they don't read that in the paper. Um, so there are schools, again, the bigger schools tend to sort of mount a campaign and they bring in lots of primaries to build relationships. Um, and they might even have designated members of staff who are in charge of building local relationships with individual families even. Um, for the smaller school who, who can't do that unilaterally, there are schemes and hopefully there are increasing numbers of schemes as well, like the Springboard one, where there can be a, a middleman, a, a charity or a group who um, stands for education opportunity but isn't representative of either the independent sector or the state sector. They have the link with parents. They do some communicating. Parents come towards them and from a position of trust, they get introduced to, well, had you thought about this school? It happens to be an independent school. I mean, we can all do something about this. Um, and a lot of what ISC does on social media is, is just trying to sort of demonstrate the normality of a lot of our schools and the partnership work that's happening. You know, we're there, we're part of the broader education system to, to normalise our kinds of schools in the public consciousness. Um, but it is, I think, tied up with expectations and impressions and perhaps a little bit of prejudice. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough one because really you want any parent to be able to just find the best school for their child, regardless yeah. of what kind of school that is. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's messaging, there's, there, there's, there's communication, there's more kind of outreach and involvement to be had in those communities. I know that a lot of the senior schools go and talk directly to the primary schools and they go into the areas. Um, but again, it's, you, you tend to get the ones that, that maybe are slightly more driven to want to. So you're almost not getting the, the, the ones you want because you, you want are the you, ones are that you are... looking for that phrase sharp elbowed? Yeah, yeah, sharp elbowed. Is, yeah, yeah. yeah. And but, if, but if people knew that 34% of the pupils in our ISC schools are already on some form of bursary support, I think they'd be quite surprised. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm surprised. To yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's and that's a huge number. Yeah. Um. So it's making it accessible, making it available, um, and it's still going to be a challenge. And I think as a as as an association, as a body of independent schools. Um, certainly pushing that I think for, um, for for more kind of accessibility to, to a private education is, is is certainly top of my list I think we should be doing more of. Um, yeah, I think we can all do our best on that. Yeah fantastic. Do, do bursaries actually contribute towards greater social mobility in the UK or do they just benefit really a small handful of upwardly mobile people? There's a bit of NFER research on this um, it won't surprise you that the recipients of the bursaries feel that they've um, had social mobility enhanced. What we're told, and I don't have any hard data on this, but if you, if you talk to the state schools, um, say who, who send that, even if it's just one a year, 
to a free place in a sixth form in an independent school. The story they tell is here is one individual and it's, it's an opportunity every year. And the fact that that exists, even though it's only for, for a minority of the population, the community, it has a ripple effect across our community. It gives us a sense of aspiration. It makes us aim high. Um, just knowing that those opportunities exist and could be for me makes me as a pupil motivated. So there is a, there is a, a feeling from those who support that kind of bursary that it's not just the recipients who gain, it's the whole community. They feel uplifted, they feel supported. Um, but as I say, it's, you know, it's, it's a very expensive option for a yeah. school to provide bursaries like that. Um, but we have, we have seen a slight rise in funding for them. Um, how it will play out after the pandemic, I don't know, because you've got a lot of schools now facing financial constraints because of pension costs, because of running a COVID safe school and all the costs of the COVID testing. Um, so everyone's having to look very carefully at where they're getting best value. But for those who, who do run bursary schemes, they genuinely feel they're creating something that's not only great for those individuals, but it's symbolic for the community. Yeah, yeah agreed. Um, think about something quite radical now. Um, it's very important for schools to continually develop their campus, their facilities, you know, to make them modern and fit for purpose. Um, but would it be a good idea to maybe put off some of that and redirect those capital funds that would be spent on a new building that possibly isn't needed, but would be a nice to have and actually put more of that effort towards funding bursaries and widening access? It depends on an individual school. So say you were developing a music specialism and you were launching music bursaries. Part of that plan might be, I need to make sure my music facilities are up to scratch in order for this all to work as a package. Um, so as I said, you know, the trustees making these decisions about strategy, long-term strategy for the schools have to balance out all of these different things. And I'm sure they'd, they'd prefer to have bursaries and partnerships and great facilities and everything else. Um, but they're having to make those decisions at a local level, depending on what they've got, where they sit compared to other schools locally, you know, what their niche is. Um, there's an awful lot they have to consider in setting up that strategy. And they're all different. Yeah. Um, what about teacher recruitment in the independent sector? Have you seen that suffer over the last three to five years? And is that going to continue to, to grow? Or are you seeing that there's been a tightening and access to, to great teachers, maybe from just within the UK? Oh, you will remember some years ago, Michael Wilshaw talking about independent schools pouring fuel on the fire of the teacher recruitment crisis. Uh, and there was a lot of talk about how most of the head teachers across the country were about to retire. Thank goodness they didn't, but how are they going to feel at the end of this COVID stuff? They're going to be really exhausted um, and that we're running out of teachers. Um, but we didn't run out of teachers. And I, I'm an optimist. So I'm, I'm hoping that one of the things we've learned from the last year is the value of teaching. And what an amazing career it is, how rewarding it is and important and meaningful that is as a career. I think in tough economic times, people might be more, um, 
they perhaps might look upon teaching as a, as a secure career, you know, a solid career option. Um, so I am hopeful. I think we saw a little bit of an uplift in across just before Christmas. Teach First was reporting a bit of an improvement in the, the overall picture. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that because our schools are so great and you can see what they've achieved, more people will be drawn towards teaching. Um, yeah. And it is a career these days where you can spend a couple of years abroad and then come back. Um, there's, there's so much you can do in a career in education. I suppose I would say this, you know, it's, it's a great place to work. Um, yeah. So I hope it will speak for itself as a really positive option for all the right people who want to make a difference. Yeah. And are you are you losing too many great teachers to the international schools? Um, there was a there was a COBIS survey last year that suggested that people in a sort of certain age bracket, they go abroad, but then they come back again. Um, so we might be losing some for part of the time, but if they're going to come back refreshed rather than just give up on teaching five years ago, maybe that's not an, a net loss. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think we need to see how this all plays out over the next few years. There are increasing numbers of overseas schools so there are the more options um but but i think it's good to have competition and lots of types of job options i think that's that's good for education generally um so as i say yeah i'm i'm, I'm optimistic that really good teachers will continue to teach and if they do choose to go abroad they'll come back again yeah so i mean i'm looking at just parents right now frazzled with homeschooling so I don't, don't know how much of that pool you're going to get, if I'm honest. Um, I, I, think, I, think, I think right now every parent's going, do you know what? I really, really appreciate my, my school. I really appreciate what those teachers put into my child and education. And I'm glad I send them to you. Um, okay, I might not be able to convert you personally, but I'm thinking of the graduates who are coming out of uni thinking, what am I going to do? Where am I going to find a job? What are the options open to me? What's needed? Um, I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball because part of your role is to not just to, to do you know, census stuff and to look back and look at data, but to model the future. So if you were to kind of fast forward 25 years, what do you predict the UK independent education sector will look like? Bigger, smaller? Um, will you still be ahead of the curve? Um, still a good reputation? What are your thoughts on UK independent sector? Bigger, yes, because the sector is adaptable. You know, we've seen that this last six months. Wow, it's just been so flexible and, and interesting. So I think the sector will become increasingly diverse. You've already got schools saying, well, I'm looking at lower cost options. I'm looking at um, a hybrid of in-school and out-of-school resources. How am I going to capture that great teacher and share that teacher across a thousand schools? So I think our sector has the freedom and the flexibility to do a lot of that work so it'd be more diverse which will make it more accessible and bigger there might be more specialism i'm expecting in my optimistic way hugely more collaboration schools working together teachers working together across the piece so that educational opportunities are the best of the best for as many children as possible um, of course independent schools will be ahead of the curve um, because they have freedom resource you know the the per capita spend on a pupil is what you pay your school fees for um, and you get 
an amazing value out of that. Uh, if you didn't, you wouldn't be spending that money. You know, you can see that it's tangible. So yes, of course, ahead of the curve. Um, I, I think we've got a, a very positive future for our sector and it's got lots and lots of opportunities that the state sector doesn't have so much because it's more risk restricted. Yeah. Um, great. Um, um, you've, you've dug deep into your crystal ball. I agree with you with the, with the hybrid learning, the online learning. I think there's, that's always been a space that, um, that we need to get better at and the independent sector have that freedom and flexibility and the resources to invest in that. And we've seen that really with lockdown and how schools have adapted because they've had the resources, they're already ahead of the game. They can deliver a rich online remote curriculum and that's got to be good for education broader. And that's the way I always look at it is that what are we doing to, to change education for everybody? And if we can make great content, great teaching accessible beyond the, the kids that are in my class, I think that's a phenomenal kind of um, societal change that I really look forward to. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.